This is Rob Goldstone, editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Our guest today is Bethany Riddle Johnson, professor and chair of psychology and human development at Vanderbilt University. She is the lead author, along with John Starr and Kelly Durkin, of the recently published article, How Can Cognitive Science Research Help Improve Education? The case of comparing multiple strategies to improve mathematics learning and teaching. Thanks for being here today, Bethany. I'm happy to be here. So you're generally interested in how people learn difficult topics like mathematics. In your article, you broadly endorse a particular pedagogical ploy, namely comparison. Can you give me an example of how a teacher or a learner might use comparison to promote learning? Sure, we actually um, focus on comparison because it's such a common thing that we do in our everyday lives. And so actually one of my favorite examples is when you're shopping online, which you're even doing more these days, there's usually a compare button, right? And you can click on that button to compare different options of whatever you're buying. And those comparisons help you notice things that are important to you and help you make selections and make your choices. I also think we compare parenting advice we compare news reports on the same events to figure out what maybe actually happened. And then also just to give you an example, this goes down to babies. And so babies are comparing cats and dogs that they see in the world to come up with categories like the difference between cats and dogs um, and the fact that they're both animals. And so comparison is just ubiquitous in our lives. What do we know about why comparison is helpful? What does it do cognitively speaking? Yeah, so I'll actually start with um, just pointing out something you said, Rob, yourself, which is that comparison is one of the most integral components of human thought, right? It's just okay. something we do. Um, but to expand on that, that humans kind of, as humans, we tend to focus on the most obvious features. We sometimes call those surface features first. And when we compare two examples, it helps us go deeper. It helps us notice underlying structure that's common to both. It helps us notice important differences between the two, not just random differences. Myself, I oftentimes use Dedry Gentner's um, structure mapping theory to help me understand those processes. It seems like there might be two different kinds of comparison. One is where you compare two things to highlight what they have in common. So one might compare uh, global climate change on the one hand and uh, views of a popular video on YouTube on the other hand to highlight that they're both instances of a positive feedback loop, namely like a, a situation where there's more of something like heat or views, which produces even more of that same thing. Or you could compare two things to highlight how they differ, like how one student's solution to a math problem takes fewer steps than another student's. So can I ask you to, as it were, compare and contrast, comparison and contrast? Are there situations where it's better to highlight commonalities versus differences? Yeah, I'm happy to. I actually, I, I think about this a lot. 
I do like to start off with the definition of what compare means, which is to note similarities or differences. Um, so it's okay. funny though, but we do, lots of people use the word compare to just focus on similarities and contrast to focus on the differences. But technically the word compare means doing both of those things. But more importantly, that was just your little language definition, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> is what we know about this for math learning, which is where we have um, focused our attention. And um, basically when we compare, or I think we actually start with finding similarities. Um, and we found in our work with learning math strategies that noticing it's most effective if you notice and ask for differences as well. Um, and really that's because it promotes flexibility and if you think about it this way, at least in something problem solving domains like math, we need to know multiple strategies and how to choose when to use them. And so that contrast, that finding of differences between strategies is what helps the learner figure out when to use each of them, which we, we call flexibility. Um, so at least in that context, I think the contrast difference part is really important. And we have some evidence to back up that claim. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, can I ask you to elaborate a little bit on what that evidence is to give just to ground yeah. things a bit? Yeah. Um, so we did one study where we had um, we had three different versions of comparison. And so one was to do the thing we we have done the most, um, which is compare two different way, two different strategies for solving the same problem, where you're thinking about the similarities in those strategies, always important, but also the differences and helping you think about when you'd use another. Then we had two other conditions where you compared using the same strategy to solve two different problems. And you're thinking more, I think, around the similarities in those problems. Um, because you're using the same kind of unifying strategy. And we varied how much those problem features differed, but students in that condition didn't learn as well as this, didn't learn as much, especially for this flexibility feature as the ones that contrasted the different ways to solve the same problem. So it's not super clean exactly what you're saying, but it's certainly um, illustrated to us that what we started with, which is what is most common that expert math teachers do, which is the, two, the same strategy, no, different strategies to solve the same problem is what makes seem the most promising to push on in mathematics right. learning. Okay, so following up on what you just said about expert math teachers, yeah. uh, what recommendations do you have for how a teacher might actually implement comparison within a classroom context? Yeah, so I think it's really important to remember that comparison is really demanding on thinking capacity. Um, so students can do it, but students need support in doing it. Uh, and so a couple things. So first of all, it's pretty demanding for a teacher to learn how to do this, which is why my colleagues um, and led with John Starr as a math education researcher have developed materials and instructional routines to support teachers in doing this. We've certainly found that teachers need support in learning how to do this. It's demanding on teachers and it's demanding on students. So even though it's really effective, it's not, oh, this easy thing to do. Um, but what can teachers do? One thing we really know is that you need to make sure that you're letting students do some of the hard thinking. 
And that's important to emphasize because my colleague Lindsay Richland has found that, especially in the United States, they tend to ask students to do the easy parts of the comparisons and then they do the hard parts themselves versus teachers in Hong Kong um, and Japan. They tend to ask the students to do both the easy and the hard thinking. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's one <laughs> piece of advice. Another thing is that making sure both things you're comparing are visible so they can see them because it's really hard to compare one thing to something that's in memory. So again, comparison's pretty resource demanding, but again, Lindsay Richland in her classroom observations found that US teachers were more likely to be comparing something to something that in memory they'd seen before, but without it being visible. And again, that makes it hard on students. Um, and then once we're making them visible, we know it's easier if they're side by side and they're using cues. So I'm using my gestures right now, which you can't see on this podcast, but um, we can use gesture, we can use language, color coding, common language. There's all sorts of things we can do to help in that presenting them side by side and then help using Dedry Gettner's word align, <laughs> helping with that alignment process. Mm -hmm. And those things are really gonna help. And then my next piece of advice, um, and these are all, have a nice evidence base for them is that we need to be prompting students to explain key parts. Mm. Um, and so it's really important that students, this goes back to my first point about students doing some of the hard work. And one of the, those hard pieces of hard work is students generating explanation. And at least in high school math classes, students typically do not spend very much time generating explanations. Um, and they need to do that and they can do that and we can support them in doing that, but it's a really important thing. And we actually, we use a simple think pair share routine to support that where students think for a minute on their own, then they share for two, uh, three minutes with a partner and then share out with the classroom and have a broader discussion. And so this simple routine has been really helpful for our high school teachers in particular who high school math teachers who don't actually have a lot, don't get a lot of training in how to facilitate discussion um, in their classrooms because they're not used to it as much. So getting students to explain, we, that's, we had to work on routines to support teachers in doing that. We didn't invent the think pair share routine. It's been around for a long time, but it's been helpful. And then my final point there, just to help is that we do, we do know from some studies that you need to make sure as a teacher that you're summarizing the main points, that you have some lesson closure, that's another word, that we want students to do hard work, but then you need to wrap it back. Um, and again, make sure they're noticing those key points. And that's something else we support our teachers in doing with our materials. Those are excellent recommendations, thanks. Um, for a last question to ask you, I'd like to go beyond just the scope of comparison to ask you, what do we know about learning from cognitive science that you kind of wish more learners and more teachers would know about and use? So uh, I guess I'm asking, what are some of your personal favorites for findings from cognitive science that show particular promise and maybe are currently underappreciated for promoting learning? Yeah, the thing, and this one I'm answering um, as much as a parent <laughs> as, uh, um, as anything else, but 
It's really about study strategies. It strikes me that my children were just told to study and rarely taught, taught how to study, but really cognitive science gives us some really good strategies. And actually my kids had a teacher who taught it and then he would do some things. And then I actually read um, the Make It Stick book that, um, <laughs> I, 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 the so anyways, in, in that thing is the like ideas like retrieval practice. I mean, I talk with my kids about retrieval practice um, pretty often and it's shocking how much no one's teaching them this really basic idea that you should not be reviewing your notes with your notes in front of you that you know this idea that you need to test yourself and not have the answers um, and I actually think that retrievalpractice.org by Pooja Argal mm, Argawal Argawal sorry mm -hmm. yeah uh-huh um, has put, she has done a really beautiful job if you go um, onto her website um, to try to work on this dissemination. So retrieval practice and interleaving, that's especially important for math. Interleaving being that problems are mixed together because math all, as we, I've already said, knowing when to use a strategy is usually the hardest part. And so this isn't, and it's so, um, and so when you get blocks of problems where you're just practicing the same strategy over and over, you're not practicing the hard thing, which is choosing which strategy to use. And mm -hmm. so interleave practice, super well documented and really important and really basic. And there's been some great cognitive science work that's trying to bridge that to, you know, basic things like how we do homework sets can help. Um, and, and then my last one, which I've already said for comparison, but just basically this idea of self-explanation, generating, mm -hmm. I, generating explanations, making connections. Um, those are the sets of things. And they're all in this case of study strategies, which I feel like some students figure out on their own, but other students, we just totally neglect. Um, and I feel like every certainly late elementary school, early middle school students in America should be, or not just America, in the world, should be learning these strategies that are super effective that we know, even college students don't recognize their effectiveness, um, so. Yeah, yeah, that's great, thanks. Um, that's all the time we have for this conversation with Bethany Riddle-Johnson. Uh, thank you, Bethany, for the incomparably fine conversation. Well, thanks very much for having me. It was a pleasure.